You know, one joke that you often hear is if you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one academic medical center. Um, to some extent, I think you could probably say the same thing about if you've seen one physician scientist, you've seen one physician scientist, because everybody does it a little bit differently. But that being said, I think there are some are definitely different ways of doing it, and it is widely varying. And I think that there's no one, there's certainly no one right answer, but there's certainly a lot of different ways that it's done. That's Scott Reeder, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello and welcome back. I'm Joe Banke, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and the process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Today, we bring you a conversation with Dr. Scott Reeder, cardiovascular radiologist, professor, and chief of MRI within the Department of Radiology at the University of Wisconsin. In addition to his clinical responsibilities, Dr. Reeder serves as the departmental vice chair of research. He also serves as director of the Liver Imaging Research Program, where he leads an NIH-funded effort to develop novel quantitative imaging methods to assess liver disease. Prior to joining faculty at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Reeder completed his undergraduate studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. He then pursued a master's in biomedical engineering and subsequent MD-PhD at Johns Hopkins University before moving out west for his residency and fellowship training at Stanford University. In today's episode, Dr. Reeder discusses his journey through scientific discovery and application, which first began as an engineer outside of medicine and has since led to a prolific career as a physician scientist and leader within academic medicine. In addition to talking about his own clinical and research interests, Dr. Reeder also discusses the outlook for aspiring radiologists in today's constantly evolving era. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Scott Reeder. Typically, how we begin these uh, conversations, just in your own words, we'd like to kind of hear about how you became a physician scientist and what was sort of the the journey like and the inspiration for um, how you kind of found your your place. Sure. Uh, well, it's a little long and complicated, but when I look back, it makes sense. It didn't really make a lot of sense uh, as I was trying to get there. But you know, in school, I always like physics and biology and I was pretty good at math too and um, had been thinking about well should I be an engineer or should I go into medicine and uh, didn't have any physicians in my family but I have several engineers in my family including including my father and my older brother and it seemed like a good choice to do that and so I, I pursued a program in engineering physics for my undergraduate at Queen's University and which was great. I had a wonderful time and enjoyed it very much. I uh, didn't feel like exactly what I wanted to do with my, when I grew up, so to speak. Uh, and I ended up having a couple of interesting summer jobs that actually in retrospect really led me there. And, and quickly I had a job working for Canadian National Railway, working on a test or what they call a, a test car or track geometry car, which is, and this is in 1988, um, which was at that time, very high tech. It was, uh, a freight car and a passenger car outfitted with sensor equipment on the tracks to do non-invasive testing of the railway going at 65 miles an hour. And I thought that was was pretty interesting. I ended up also getting a job the following summer doing research in pulp and paper, um, looking at um, the physics of, of fi paper fiber morphology 
with a non-invasive testing device to look at how many times you can recycle paper. And then for two more summers, I worked for a lab group at um, my undergraduate institution doing non-invasive testing of uh, pipelines using what's called a magnetic flux leakage tool so that you could look for corrosion pits by inserting a device called a pig into the into the, the pipeline and to find out where to prioritize maintenance on the pipeline um, and, and also to prevent environmental disasters as a result of that. So you can see this theme of non-invasive testing uh, that I didn't really, wasn't really apparent to me at the time. And then I thought about going to, and I was still thinking about medicine in the back of my mind. And I went to, um, I applied for graduate school because that's what everybody, all my buddies were doing. Mm -hmm. I have the background. I didn't have the biological under uh, prerequisites to, to go into medical school. Um, so I thought about going into aerospace and uh, aerospace engineering and this thing I'd never heard of called biomedical engineering at an institution I'd never heard of in Baltimore called Johns Hopkins. And um, I went and visited Johns Hopkins on a way down to a windsurfing trip after I graduated. Uh, and I sat on the beach and I said, well, do I want to help make medical devices or do I want to build warplanes? And I think the choice became pretty clear. <laughs> so, I, so, I did a so I did a master's in biomedical engineering and then discovered MRI and met a number of physicians, both cardiologists and some radiologists. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And so after my master's, I applied for the MD-PhD program, and here I am doing non-invasive testing in humans. That's a great uh, story, and and I think it's it's unique in that a lot of people who go to medical school, including MD-PhD, early on, they kind of figure out that they want to be a doctor, and then they look to go to medical school. And, and in your case, you kind of had this sort of organic passion for um, science in such a way that eventually led you to you know, go into medical school and, and then MD PhD training. So I feel like that is a very uh, sort of novel uh, and, and unique approach to, to getting there. Well, the other thing I would say is that I also, I was immediately drawn to the human aspect of this as well, which I think for me was the big piece that was missing in engineering. Like I think a lot like an engineer, but I also really enjoy the fact that in my current job that, you know, making a difference in patients' lives is remarkably gratifying. And uh, I was just missing. I mean, the importance of engineering cannot be understated in, in terms of saving lives and stamping out disease and doing all that. But actually doing this, like, you know, working with a real world patient was missing. And I, when I saw that, as a grad, you know, as a master's student, that's when I realized that, you know, I've been thinking about medical school, but didn't really understand it. That's when I really understood it a lot better. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a good choice. Um, and then it sounds like you kind of knew you wanted research to be a major component of your career. I'm curious when you walked into the lecture hall on the first day of medical school, did you know that that was going to be, um, you know, paired up with radiology as a clinical specialty? Yes. Yeah, I did. I, you know, so I had done, I, I did a full that, that two year master. So I had a really, like a really significant exposure to, um, to, um, medical imaging and patients. And I did a, some shadowing with uh, one of my cardiology mentors when I was a, a master's student. And I, I really had to decide between becoming a cardiologist who was good at imaging 
or becoming a radiologist. And what I realized was that I, I mean, I love, and I do cardiac imaging now for a living, but what I really wanted to do was to have the ability to go beyond just the heart and, and, you know, to do other, other areas as well. So yes, I did know that an academic career as a radiologist uh, was what I wanted to do before I really, as I went into medical school, exactly how that was going to look and what balance of research I didn't know whether I was going to be doing mostly clinical with some research or the other way around. And, and it's migrated towards I do, you know, about half of my time is doing research, um, but uh, which is a little, probably more than I expected, but I'm really enjoying it. And it's a lot of fun and it has a lot of clinical relevance, too. Mm-hmm. So it's, even when I'm doing research, it kind of feels like I'm helping patients, too. Right. Um, yeah, I think the sort of perfect dovetail or marriage of, of uh you know, research and clinical practice, how to sort of optimize the two is having nice overlap. Um, I worked with fruit flies. And so that was very clinically on the far end of the spectrum from what, you know, my day to day as a medical student looks like. And so it's sort of hard to kind of optimize those two, uh, two different, you know, general topics. But um, I feel like when you're encountering aspects of your research when you're in the reading room and constantly thinking about what you're going to explore in the lab when you're in the reading room and, and vice versa. I think there's a lot of utility um, in that. I I agree. I agree. And I think the other thing I would say is that that balance can change over time. And, and I think to some extent it should Um, just, you know, it can be based on, on your own interests evolve. Um, you know, maybe success with grants, if grants aren't going so well, maybe you need to spend a little more time clinically to kind of justify your, your sort of position and all that, or, or maybe you're, you've discovered something really fascinating and exciting scientifically that you really want to go for a deep dive and that you can really go for it. And if you've got in a, a situation where you're able to do that, that would make sense uh, as well. And, you know, at this stage in my career, I'm also thinking more about leadership and administrative related positions. And I think that's really exciting because that actually really helps me to help more people on a bigger level. Rather, I mean, one-on-one mentorship is wonderful too. And I do a lot of that, but mm-hmm. leadership helps you to do sort of super, it's like supercharged mentoring mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a way. And, uh, and so I, I find myself, you know, thinking more about that and putting more energy into that too. That's great. Well, while we're on that topic of leadership, um, I I know you were a former associate uh, PD of the MSTP at Wisconsin. um, And since you've you've, uh, now become the vice chair of research within the radiology department, would you mind kind of talking about two of those leadership roles? What were some commonalities between the two? And and in your current role as vice chair of research, like what are your priorities? Right. Uh, that's a good question. I, I would say that uh, I would break it down roughly into um, sort of vision and strategy as, as one entity. And then the second one is sort of more operations based. Um, so vision and strategy for the program director. So there were uh, three program directors, um, pardon me, four program directors, a main program director and three assistants in our MSTP program. And uh, we played um, an important support role operationally, sort of on the day-to-day operations of the MSTP program, everything from recruitment and admissions to um, just day-to-day mentoring, helping with the seminars and things like that. Um, But then more strategically, really, you know, thinking hard about, you know, where do we want to go with the program? What new initiatives do we need to implement? 
Um, how can we best help the students in the long run? What are the deficiencies of the programs and what are the strengths and how can we really, you know, continue to grow this into a, a better and better program? Um, and then the other major thing, of course, would be like the renewal of, you know, the NIH, you know, training grant and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, on the on the vice chair for research side, I would say it's similar in the sense that there's a lot of operations related things. So I'm the chair of the R&D committee where we receive pilot uh, awards um, for internal funding of different research projects. In fact, that's my next meeting is going to be exactly that. Uh, and um, uh, so, and, and also overseeing, providing sort of the, the leadership of the research operations within the group. I don't, I have a, a dyad manager that I work closely with who does the very, like the day-to-day, -day, you know, overseeing our, our various research managers, um, but major decision-making from an operations point of view falls on me. Um, and then in terms of the vision, I would say that I, I, I really am partnering with the chair and other vice chairs, but largely myself and the and the chair to think hard about where are we going in the long term, setting strategic priorities for areas to invest. For example, if we're going to recruit new faculty or buy new major equipment, you know, how is that helping to further our goals and mission? And what is our strategy to become, you know, to continue to become or to to be a world class radiology department and to take it to the next level. So, yeah, it's uh, so it's again strategy, vision, and uh, operations, and and a lot of philosophy mixed up in there as well. And then also there's also a lot of mentoring in both of those too. So I have you know junior faculty who are come to me and say I'm having trouble getting my grant funded. What should I do? Or um, you know, what do you think about this from a promotion point of view? So, yeah, there's a it, it's very multifaceted. It's a lot of fun. Hmm. I was curious to hear um, your thoughts and and just for context, Michael is going into medicine and eventually cardiology and uh, is interested in in physician scientist uh, careers. And I'm going into diagnostic radiology and and also looking to stay in academia and and make research a you know a big component of my career. In terms of what a physician scientist looks like in different specialties, I was curious if you can talk about how it looks in radiology and and compare and compare that with maybe a, a medicine, uh, you know, subspecialty. We often hear of this this like 80-20 split where um, a lot of medicine subspecialists spend you know four days in the lab and one day in clinic. And um, one thing in in radiology is I. I I've seen plenty of examples of physician scientists, but I, I think the split is a little different. And I was just curious if you could kind of comment on, on sort of that structure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I, I, a couple of comments. I think, you know, one joke that you often hear is if you've seen one academic medical center, you've seen one academic medical center. Um, to some extent, I think you could probably say the same thing about if you've seen one physician scientist, you've seen one physician scientist, because everybody does it a little bit differently. But that being said, I think there are some are definitely different ways of doing it. And it is widely varying. And I think that there's no one, there's certainly no one right answer, but there's certainly a lot of different ways that it's done. I think there are certainly MD, PhD students um, after they graduate, they get it, you know, they really, I mean, where you really learn medicine is during your subspecialty training as a, you know, whether it's a cardiologist or radiologist. And 
I think that's where you will really, you know, determine your passion and your skill set there. And that sometimes I find changes what people want to do. I've known MD PhD students who have done that and go, oh man, I love clinical radiology or clinical cardiology or surgery. And then most of their career is they just go that direction and become primarily clinically focused. Others are really excited about it and do well, but they really want to get back to um, to becoming more, they're more of a scientist and sort of in their DNA. Mm-hmm. And they're also a physician. Um, you know, I'll just tell you what my balance is and why I have I, I'm really so thrilled and excited about my the balance I found. I'm I'm about. 20 to 30 percent clinical it varies a bit i have some research or some 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 um administrative uh responsibilities as well so i'd say let's say roughly 25 percent clinical roughly 25 percent administrative and about 50 percent um uh research and the thing i like about my the way i've been able to arrive at my current situation is that the distance so it's like the academic distance between what i see in the reading room and what I see in the lab is very small. In fact, you know, we're, I'm often getting a lot of ideas for the lab based on deficiencies that I'm seeing with the MR technology. It's like, you know, one of the things I've, I've been working a lot on is fat quantification. And so, you know, it, it drove me crazy for years that with qualitative fat um, uh, detection methods, People would say, well, how do you know how much fat is there? Well, you know, it's kind of a little bit eyeballing it and saying, yeah, there's a little, a lot or or not so much. Um, and so we said, you know, I think I've got some ideas on how we could actually come up with a quantitative imaging biomarker. And then we literally go to the whiteboard, like the one behind me here, and write down some signal equations and then figure out the pulse sequences and the reconstruction algorithms. And then literally kind of within weeks, days to weeks you've got a prototype method that you can go try on the scanner and lo and behold it works and then you find you know there's a lot more engineering that goes into that and i mean it's that's you know been 15 years of my life doing that but hmm. you know being able to to develop that come up with an idea develop a method and then try it in patients almost right away is is it's a very rapid cycle of innovation. And to me, that really, and it makes a lot of sense for someone like me to do, to do that. The, the technologies that we're developing are fairly complicated. It does take an engineering background to be able to come up with that and optimize it and, and refine it. Oh, excuse me. Um, and, um, but it also takes a clinical understanding to really know what the unmet clinical needs are. And the fact that I'm actually practicing with these methods now um, really brings it full circle so that, that, that they feed back on one another. I think I, I don't have this experience, but I think it would be, I, I would, it would be more um, difficult to bring them together if you had, you know, more of a basic science or really basic science isn't the best term, more of a fundamental science, mm-hmm. um, you know, type of lab, like for example, working on Drosophila, you know, which is important and to furthering knowledge and understanding basic biology. But, are you going to turn that into a diagnostic technique for your patients? Maybe, but less likely. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's just a bigger difference. And I think you're, you're, you're the way you're thinking about things is a lot more different. I see my roles as totally blended and blurred together. And yes, I know when I'm on clinical service, but, uh, and I know when I'm in the lab physically, but my brain is thinking very similar ways in both environments. 
Uh, it's really well put. I was curious, while we're sort of on the subject, radiology is a very dynamic field and it's very interdisciplinary and we're constantly hearing about innovation, even on like the daily news. I was curious if you could comment on how you think radiology is sort of evolving and what the day-to-day of the radiologist is going to look like in 10 or 15 years, and then comment on the role of you know someone who is um, heavy into to research, what, what their role is going to be in the sort of bigger picture. Oh my gosh, this is a golden age of radiology. And in some ways, I think we're there's been several golden ages already of radiology. For example, you know, t- 20 to 30 years ago with the advent of cross-sectional imaging with MR and CT, there was an absolute explosion of the field with this, in, you know, moving away from just you know, basics like um, really radiography and barium and things like that. And then, you know, with the explosion of ultrasound and molecular imaging as well, we've been able to do incredible new things. But now we're getting into this whole AI machine learning based approach to things that is going to completely transform how we do imaging. What I I would say is I'm incredibly optimistic about the field. Um, Sometimes, you know, there's been a lot of gloom and doom about AI and other things like that. I think this is the best thing that ever happened to us, at least in my career, Um, you know, sort of short of the x-ray itself, because we are absolutely indispensable in the hospital. And the reason why we're so busy and why imaging volumes keep going up and up and up is that our other physician colleagues, you know, our surgeons and cardiologists and internal medicine and neurologists, they can't live without us. They need the the really remarkable information that we're able to provide. And uh, I feel really proud about being so central in the diagnosis, the treatment itself with minimally invasive therapies, and then treatment monitoring. Uh, and as we move to into an area era of like precision health and screening of high risk patients, we're just going to continue to be more and more relevant. And we are incredibly relevant to um, to all modern imaging. You don't get you don't get any you don't get treated for anything without one or more imaging studies these days. It just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so um, now, exactly what it's going to look like is going to be hard to 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 say for sure. But I think a few major themes is just the continued and uh, sort of stepwise and accelerating integration of AI and machine learning, everything from scheduling to um, smart scanners that are going to be faster and smarter and personalized to computer-assisted diagnosis, and in some cases, maybe complete diagnosis for normals, automated dictations, um, all of the things, all of the tools that it's going to make workflow uh, and standardization and quantification uh, much more routine. I have zero worries about um, our relevance uh, mm-hmm. in the field. Uh, you know, in fact, if it cut out a few normal chest X-rays, wouldn't break my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and then, and then, ultimately, I think the uh, the other major. Uh, theme, is, well, a few other major themes that are going to be integrated diagnostics. So how do we put this together with basic things like serum lab tests, but more fancy things like genomics and proteomics and wearable sensors and to really painting a, a, a picture of, you know, how are we going to help this patient? So I actually think that 
we're so good, we being the radiology field, is so good at handling all the data that we actually may become the primary area where diagnosis is made. And we actually may, to some extent, take that away. And I don't mean Mm -hmm. that in an aggressive way, but that may migrate into our field. And it really has migrated into our field much more than it did look like 30 or 40 years ago, where it was the internal uh, medicine physician or surgeon who was making a diagnosis. When I had my appendix out at age 13, it was the surgeon who made the diagnosis. Today, it would have been the radiologist mm-hmm. who made the diagnosis. Really simple example. Um, but then the other piece of it is I think that there's just going to be a continuing drive towards more minimally invasive therapies. So local regional therapies like you know ablation-based uh, techni- technologies and then Theranostics is really exploding uh, as well. And again, all of this is driven by... Uh, by radiologists. And I think a lot of it is just that we're an innovative group. And mm-hmm. so we're, we're good at bringing these things in, you know, into fruition and making them happen. So um, those are just a few of the, the many exciting changes that I, I think are going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think the machine learning bit, I mean, we're constantly hearing about how machine learning is going to take people's jobs and whatnot. And I, I think the reality is, um, as you mentioned, I think it's going to improve workflow for certain things and make uh certain tasks easier, which would free up, you know, our time. And I think the other reality is it's not just going to be radiology. It's going to be every specialty. I mean, every specialty is, is based, you know, driven by an algorithm of some sort. So there are, there's going to be automation that goes on in every specialty. And so, um, but the one kind of observation that I've noted in my like short career is that radiology is very accepting of innovation and, and is very willing to, um, you know, change things and and machine learning is even involved in, you know, the reading room these days, which a lot of people aren't even uh, aware of. Um, so I, I think that as an aspiring radiologist, that's something that I'm very excited about is the willingness to incorporate, you know, things that are going to improve our, our day-to-day um, workflow. Um, there's, there's so much low-hanging fruit and there's so many ways to add value that are good for patients that how could we not do it take for example you know an uh, just a basic uh triage algorithm for pulmonary embolus I mean, and there's many others and we use some example we have some examples of that in our practice and when i'm on call reading you know ct angiograms and or and chest x-rays and chest ct and i've got a hundred cases literally in front of me and then the little red light pops up and says there's a positive pe so I open that case next, and I'm va- verifying, sure enough, there's a pulmonary embolus, and I have that report dictated, and the emergency department is, knows within less than five minutes of being of the scan being done. How is that not adding value? If nothing else, accelerating the disposition of that patient to the floor by an hour or two it easily could be that, or the incidental pulmonary embolus that mm-hmm. I wasn't, nobody was even looking for. That's adding huge value, and it doesn't have to be perfect. If it's pretty good, you've still added a lot of value. And that this is a really simple example. There's all kinds of other ways that it's going to impact us in positive ways. Right. Um, you had commented on some of your research uh, with imaging fat, like and water imaging, and I recall from a, a graph, um, a line plot that you had showed uh, back at RSNA when you presented. Um, about when you got into the field. And at that time, that was sort of a, um, like a local minimum, like there, there weren't a lot of uh, 
papers coming out on that area of research. And uh, after you entered the field, it had kind of since exploded. Um, I was curious about, I mean, it sounds like from the conversations we've had thus far and, and even at RSNA, it was sort of deliberate in your approach to choosing a topic where you saw a lot of growth um, and something that, was, uh, that wasn't that was yet saturated. Um, and I was curious if you had any uh, tips or approaches that other people could kind of um, apply to their own, you know, their own research, like what to look for, generally speaking, when choosing a research topic. Yeah, I think, um, well, a few things. I think you have to find it interesting. And I thought, I mean, for me, the physics behind it was, I understood it. It was somewhat challenging, but not impossible. Um, And uh, it was just from a purely sort of technical and scientific point of view, it was very interesting. But then I also um, spent enough time to to see that, you know, I think this actually has some real clinical relevance and uh, what's out there. And there wasn't much. And I had a few ideas and and I found that, you know, half a dozen papers on the topic that were pretty deficient. I mean, there were, there were landmark papers that were incredibly important, but there were major deficiencies and opportunities to really take this to the whole next level. So um, when I, in my talk, I, I described the idea of low hanging fruit and um your ability you don't have to write if you write the first paper or one of the first papers it doesn't have to be a a really perfect great paper it can be a good paper and because it lays out some new ideas for the first Mm -hmm. time and when you do that it's i think it's probably easier to get published i don't know if it's easier to get published but um it's uh it's more impactful um and then there's a whole lot of space in that that area where you can write follow-on papers to really, and if it works out well, then then great. You know, you can make a career on it. And in, in that area, for example, I really have made my career on that. If you come into something late, um, there's nothing wrong with that too, because you certainly can can if you can make contributions to that to build on those other foundations that others have made. That's great as well, and it's important, and someone needs to do it it's just a little harder. Um, it's a little harder because oftentimes the, the the level of rigor and that you have to understand all of that literature behind all of that. And the contributions are probably a little more incremental than the initial larger foundational steps that were made. Um, but I, I would say the biggest thing is that if you're excited about it and you're able to find a way to make a contribution, that's the most important thing. Hmm also have the choice where you can get into something that's earlier where there's more sort of so-called low-hanging fruit and yeah there's just a whole lot more to do and in fact that those glory days of when you know ct and mri you know everybody was writing a paper about this sign and that sign well all of that pathology has all been described now and so you know we don't we don't write we don't do research papers on that kind of thing anymore because it's all been figured out uh, and that's okay. There's lots of other things to move on to, but you're not going to be, you know, you, nobody writes a paper anymore about, you know, such and such sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, all, that's all done. So, um, yeah. So it's when op- opportunity meets interest and preparation, I think. Hmm. Another important topic that we cover in this series um, relates to the like various transitions throughout training. Um, we kind of touched on this earlier, the training, or the, the transition from MD, PhD trainee or MD trainee um, to um, resident and uh, fellow and, and faculty 
Um, there are really a lot of important nuances in that transition. And I was curious if you could talk about what, if you can think back to when you were um, transitioning from MD PhD trainee to um, to a, a resident, what that looked like, and then anything you learned through your own experiences that you now impart to trainees that you encounter uh, currently. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's hard. Um, I think it's hard, especially if somebody has a pretty clear vision of what they want to do, like five, you know, you've got, because the road is long, mm-hmm. right? You know, you graduate from MD, PhD, and then you've got, if you're doing radiology, that's typically six, maybe seven more years of training. You know, cardiology is similar, uh, surgery, maybe longer um, before you're actually, you know, getting out as a faculty member where you can then really set your program up. I guess what I would say, the first thing is that, you know, assuming that you really do want to do both science and clinical you're likely going to be working in a clinical, well, you will be at least in part working in a clinical department. You might be working entirely within a clinical department. Sometimes people will work in two to two different departments, but you're at least going to be in one clinical department. If you don't have bona fide clinical training, then you're not going to be respected as a clinician and you need to be a card carrying fill in the blank. In my case, cardiovascular imager. Hmm. And you need to be respected for that and you need to be good at it. And that's also your duty as being a good physician. So what I would say, one piece of advice I would say would be, is that focus on what you're doing at the time. So when you're an intern, learn all of the stuff that you're supposed to learn as an intern, learn how to put those central lines in, understand, you know, um, medicine from an intern's perspective. Like if you're doing a surgery internship, you know, you need to learn to think like a surgeon or internist. Uh, And when you're a radiology resident, you have to make it a priority to really become a bona fide card carrying radiologist. So that'll be my number one piece of advice. That all being said, um, you know, MD, PhD students typically have a lot of bandwidth. And I would say that if you're a person who has a lot of bandwidth, taking on some additional interests that create some continuity as a physician scientist is probably a reasonable idea. So uh, I was lucky that during my internship, I was able to do a research project during my internship. It was pretty small. It was a minor thing, but I actually got to work with an interventional radiologist doing a project related to ultrasound. It was just a retrospective review, but it was actually, it's been, we got a paper out of it. And it's been highly cited. So, you know, it gave me a little bit of feeling for what doing a clinical research project was like. It's something I hadn't done before. Mm. And then when I was a radiology resident, I did some technical development and I was able to work that in, you know, with my call schedule and exams and all of that sort of thing. The research took second priority, you know, a, a distant second priority, but I wrote a few papers as a resident as well. But again, my number one priority was my clinical training. So Focus on what you're doing first. If you're doing your PhD and writing your thesis, you're not, you know, you're not worrying about uh, putting in central lines and writing prescriptions. Mm. Uh, Just sort of to end our conversation and and still kind of related to the topic, at what point did you start to put um, a lot of thought into like, how do I become an independent investigator and, you know, what is my lab going to look like and how do I approach, you know, creating a lab and, and so forth? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I would say that that my lab did not come into formation until about four or five years after I was on faculty. Uh, a lot of the initial work, I did have graduate students early, 
um, and, and a few postdocs, but it was really, I would say it wasn't even a fully formed lab at that point. It was more of a, you know, I, I had some mentees and was doing some research projects. A lot of that I had to do myself um, and, you know, started to write papers, generate ideas. You get invited for talks. I would write some small grants, go to grant writing courses, write larger grants and really go for it with a big NIH grant, get rejected, learn from that, try again. And it took me about, um, you know, I was able to get small grants right away, but it, it took me about four years to get my first big grants. And once those started to come through, then I really had the resources to get a little more time off of clinical, uh, my, the clinic, out of the clinical service. Um, the department gave me some space and really I launched a, a, a bona fide program. Uh, at that point. So it doesn't have to be right away. I think it's a good idea, though, when you're going into a faculty position to know what kind of position that you want to do. So if and, and at our institution, what that means is that you would go as a tenure track. So I, I was recruited as a tenure track faculty um, because I knew that was what I wanted to do. And uh, those are pretty uncommon. Um, most uh, faculty positions are clinician educator uh, positions at our institution. That's it's, It varies from place to place. And that's important too, is to know what kind of place you're going to, to make sure that there is a track. And so one of the things that that did for me is that it did give me an automatic 50% clinical time right from the beginning. So I did have significant protected time right from the beginning. Now, if I didn't deliver in terms of demonstrating myself to be sort of a national level expert, by the time I went up for tenure, I might not get promoted. I have to leave. Mm-hmm. That's the downside of tenure. But understanding those promotion pathways is really important because if you're going to go into a, a, if you really want to set up a lab, but you take a job that's five days a week clinical, when are you going to find the time to do what you need to do to to, to generate a lab? You're going to have, you know, so th- those are important things you need to think about ahead of time. But you don't have to have the lab all visioned right from the beginning. Got it. Um, good to know. Hey, Dr. Reeder, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time and and really appreciate the conversation. Um, I Before we leave, just want to quickly open the door to Michael. Well, I just want to thank you as well, Dr. Reeder, uh, for being here with, with us today. I think, uh, I, I guess I'll uh, 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 turn the, the clock back a little bit and ask you if you're in our position, you know, at the moment, uh, finishing up MD-PhD and starting residency, hopefully on a physician scientist pathway, what are some things you wish you had known back then that you can impart on trainees like us at this stage? Oh, yeah, good, good question. I would say um, a few things. Uh, one is I would definitely think very carefully about the people and the environment that you're going to work in. Incredibly important, your collaborators, your boss, your co- your peers, so that it, you know, if you are going to go the route of, for example, really becoming a true physician scientist with a lab and a practice, it's tricky and has challenges. But if you're in an environment that supports that, fantastic, right? You will do well. Um, so, and you need to be very realistic about that. I, the other comment I would say is don't worry about the money. Uh, you are all going to be fine and well uh, reimbursed for what you're going to be doing, especially if you're practicing at some level. And while I believe very strongly that money is important, um, I it's uh, I wouldn't overemphasize that because as, if you are doing what you want to do with 
the people that you want to do number one thing like that's the most important thing is working with great colleagues in a great environment if you've got that you're going to have you know wealth beyond your imagination and i don't mean that in the financial sense but you're just going to have a rich and rewarding life and the money will be will be fine and you'll do great i have more money than i need and don't tell my boss that uh, and um and i love what i'm doing and that's what i care about more than than that aspect of it very well put um thanks again for your time uh really really appreciate it um my pleasure it's fun to talk with you that's our episode for this week we want to thank dr reader for the great conversation if you enjoyed this episode please rate subscribe and share with others who may appreciate this content please feel free to leave us a review so we can improve our process Behind the Microscope is executively produced by Bijan Saidi, Carrie Jansen, Michael Saig, and myself. Our faculty advisor is Dr. Brian Robinson. I'm Joe Banke, and thank you so much for listening. Tune in with us next time.